Every once in a while, I write down platform titles or ideas, and I just pin them to the bulletin board over my desk, where I might stare at them for weeks or for months, you know, waiting for the right time to bring that idea to you, to bring that title, waiting until I feel as though the time is ripe. This is, incidentally, a good way to get me to talk about whatever it is you think I should talk about. You just write it in something approximating my handwriting pin it up there, and later I won't know, and I'll think it was my own idea, and then I'll turn it into a platform. So just keep that in mind. So I've had this particular title, Gnosis and Unknowing, for maybe, I think it's really been a few years now. It's been on a post-it note over my computer. I look at it all the time, thinking about when it might be right for me to talk about. And this, I think, is the moment, except... So I, I pulled it off, you know, I pulled it off the bulletin board and, and made it the title for this Sunday a number of weeks ago, and then it goes out in the newsletter and in the program and all of that. And and as I got closer and closer to the platform, it became less and less clear to me what I thought that was supposed to be about, that title, Gnosis and Unknowing. I was really feeling the unknowing part. You know, I was, I was embodying it. What had I been trying to say to my future self those years ago? I did think I knew what I meant by gnosis. After all, that, that's an actual term, you know. It's a great cocktail party word, actually, gnosis. You just, like, drop it in. You know, well, it's like Gnosticism. And no one actually knows what you're talking about, so you can, you can use it for almost anything. <laughs> oh, it's like in the Gnostic tradition. And then just walk away. (laughs) Get another drink. It's fine. The word gnosis is a Greek word, and it means knowledge, essentially, although it's sort of more like um, insight or enlightenment kind of knowledge, not really really book knowledge necessarily, certainly not facts. It's like an awareness, uh, a realization. But the term is used in a religious context, specifically in Jewish, Christian, and Muslim uh, traditions, to mean a kind of body of religious knowledge that's usually mystical in some way, that's special or available only to the sort of the in crowd, the people that have that secret information, that have the gnosis. There are whole theologies that are built around this idea of secret, special knowledge. Those traditions that we know as Gnosticism. You might be most familiar with them through the Gnostic Gospels. I don't know if any of you have heard of that. The Gnostic Gospels, they were discovered in this really great discovery story by an Egyptian who was actually getting ready to sort of be part of a blood revenge feud, which is the not great part of the story, but he found these, and then he broke the thing, and he thought maybe a jinn would come out, but no, there were scrolls in them, and they were sold in the black market. It's all It's like a great sort of mystery story about discovering documents if that's your kind of thing, which it sort of is my kind of thing. And, um, and, and, and they were these gospels, these stories about Jesus. That's what gospels are, the good news about Jesus, right? Um, they were stories about Jesus that had never been found before uh, for, for thousands of years and that were, um, that were different than the ones that we knew, the ones that had been made part of the Christian canon, part different from those gospels. And they tell that story of Jesus and sayings that they think Jesus said in stories and parables that are difficult to understand, 
So, so it feels even more sort of secret and special. They offer new images and metaphors for that story. Elaine Pagels, who is the author of a book called The Gnostic Gospels and kind of one of the, one of the best lay accessible books about those, um, about those texts, she wrote, Orthodox Jews and Christians, so Orthodox, that's not the Gnostics, right? The Orthodoxy, the, the sort of, uh, Straight thinking, right thinking is what it is. Orthodox Jews and Christians insist that a chasm separates humanity from its creator. God is wholly other. But some of the Gnostics who wrote these Gospels contradict this. Self-knowledge, they would say, is knowledge of God. The self and divine are identical. I want you to bookmark that thought in your mind. We might come back to it. But this isn't actually a platform about the history of Gnosticism, as fascinating as that would be. It really is fascinating. There's kind of particular sociopolitical beliefs that went with the Gnostic traditions that tend to be related. But but really, that's not what I meant when I wrote that Gnosis, an unknowing wrote note to myself. I'm pretty sure about that, because really, this is a platform about the ethical culture approach to the sacred. It actually, though, took me researching Gnosticism, making sure that I was getting you the right information, and then glancing at a link that popped up below for me to remember why I had pulled those years ago the word gnosis and then unknowing. Because, silly me, it's not that we're a community of Gnostics. For the most part, we're agnostics. That's what I was thinking of. (laughs) We're agnostics, many of us, not all of us, of course, but it's a frequent term that people here might use to describe how they feel about God. Of course, some folks describe themselves as atheists and some as theists, too, but a lot of folks here might say, you know, I'm agnostic, I don't know. I don't think I will know. I don't think anyone knows. It's not really that important to me. When we talk about the term agnostic in common parlance, we're usually referring specifically to a belief in God and often to a particular kind of belief in God that we don't know about, right? It's it's within the context of kind of the Jewish-Christian identity in this country. But I wonder sometimes, doesn't it imply also that we might have an absence of knowledge and maybe an absence of curiosity about the sacred? If that's totally true, it's kind of a bummer for us in the month of March, but I think we're going to get there, guys. Stay with me. Because here's the thing. If you look up the definition of sacred, if you just Google it and your little Merriam-Webster thing pops up, It says that sacred is connected with God or the gods or dedicated to a religious purpose and so deserving veneration. That's a word we use so much here, veneration. It's not very common. No, it's not. I'm trying to say, how many first-time visitors are here? I I put these little, like, sort of in-jokes in, and then I think, oh, I better correct that. So veneration. Sacred rites, it says, the synonyms are holy, hallowed, blessed, consecrated, sanctified, revered. Religious rather than secular, that's an alternative definition for sacred. 
talking about sacred music, for instance, instead of secular music. And by that definition, strictly interpreted, it might be hard to see exactly what it does have to do with us. But then when I ask you about what is sacred, about what the sacred is to you, you have such beautiful answers. You know, we collect those answers in the weeks before we start exploring a month and then Shirley incorporates them into her artwork or we collect them on Facebook. And I loved reading your answers this month. Family, you said. The truth, someone said. The truth is sacred. Time. Some of you named special places. Places that held a kind of power for you because of what you had experienced there. Feeling connected to another person really deeply. The bond we feel with people we've traveled through life with. Nature, the earth, and its creatures, someone wrote. I think about some of my own experiences of what I might call sacred I think about my children being placed on my chest for the first time when they were born. That might also be sort of an experience of relief. (laughs) But there's something awe-inspiring, something scary about that moment. I wonder how often scary comes into the sacred I think about walking up the aisle at my wedding day, seeing people around me. The first spring day every year. I've been thinking about that a lot as I've read The Secret. Well, yeah, no. (laughs) Just in general, that's true. But as I've read The Secret Garden, I don't know if you remember that book. But the descriptions of spring, I mean, you can taste it in that book. You know, thinking about how the flowers come up the very first time. And that moment, they describe it so well, that no moment when you walk outside and you realize it's spring. You can't tell what it is, why that was the day, but you can feel it, you know. And I think, of course, about our story this morning, about the everything seed and that moment of birth, a birth we can only half imagine, because it was so grand. All of the experiences that West folks named, as I asked you to think about the sacred, as you might expect, they're fundamentally human experiences, grounded in human lives, in our interaction with the world around us, the animals and the trees and the people. In fact, like any community of good existentialists, that's another good uh, cocktail party conversation. That's really your takeaway from from today's platform, our cocktail party words. Existentialism, you know, is a, a philosophical school of thought that says essentially there's no meaning out there in the world that exists. And so I think it gets such a bad rap, existentialism, like, like then that must be depressing. But actually, really, what it means is that we create our own meaning together, that we build it So like any good existentialist, many of you said, well, there's no real thing that's sacred out there in any kind of ultimate sense. We make things sacred. 
as one of you put it, by the seriousness with which we approach them. I loved that. A number of you equated the concept of something being sacred with it being inviolable. Which makes sense, I think. That's often how we use it in common parlance, isn't it? You know, this thing is sacred. It's set aside. You can't, you can't touch it quite the same way you can touch everything else. There are boundaries around it. And for you, that meant, that meant that sacredness might be equated with worth and dignity of every person. With seeing people as an ends, not a means or perhaps just with people themselves. I think about justice movements that I have been part of, and there is always an element there of the inviolable, the sacredness, the care with which we want to steward the earth, the sacredness of love or of every life. And then I think about us, about our gathering and what we do together. This is, as you may know, the third Sunday in a row that we've had some kind of winter weather event. That some point on Saturday, someone called me or emailed me or texted me and said, So, (laughs) we're going to have a platform tomorrow? It's the least favorite part of my job. It's just the worst part of what I have to do is is trying to figure out if we should be open on a Sunday. And I was thinking about it last week, actually. You know, why is it so painful to me to have to make that decision? And I realized it's because I think what we do together when we gather really matters. It's sacred somehow. I think actually about the phrase over our stage, which is over the stage of many an ethical society, a a phrase from Felix Adler, the founder of ethical culture, that says, where people meet to seek the highest is holy ground, hallowed by our coming together. So it's not just a a lecture that we're canceling, you know. It's it's not just a a get-together or a party. There's something that matters that we do together that I don't like to cancel. And side note, you should always make your own decision about safety and comfort. (laughs) You are adults with the tools to be able to make those decisions, and we would never be mad at you. Sidebar. Because you also are sacred. Oh, look, I put it all together. (laughs) The thing is for us that we don't have a canon right, to tell us what is sacred. Ellen was asking me, Ellen, who officiated this morning, was asking me as she was preparing to speak this morning whether the theme this month was sacred or the sacred. And I thought about it, and I said, I think it's really just sacred, even though I realize that that is totally linguistically awkward to say. (laughs) Because the key part for us is that there isn't a the there. We can't identify the the in sacred. As I've been thinking about this theme as well, I've been thinking about the Humanist Manifesto. I'm sure you guys think about that all the time. The Humanist Manifesto was written in 1933, and it was kind of the first articulation of religious humanism. And, uh, and it has a whole bunch of different articles that it posits. It's, you know, it was written by a bunch of Unitarian ministers and philosophers and professors and, and, uh, 
and uh, later signed on to by a couple of ethical culture leaders, and so it's pretty heady, I have to say. But I was thinking in particular about the seventh article of the Humanist Manifesto. You'll know, obviously, exactly what I'm talking about, but I'll quote it for you just in case. Uh, In the seventh article, it says, Religion consists of those actions, purposes, and experiences which are humanly significant. Nothing human is alien to the religious. I love that. That's one reason we do comprehensive sexuality education with our kids, right? Nothing human is alien to the religious. It all belongs here. It belongs with us. Anyway, that was a side note. It includes labor, art, science, philosophy, love, friendship, recreation, all that is in its degree expressive of intelligently satisfying human life. This is the best part. The distinction between the sacred and the secular can no longer be maintained. Isn't that interesting? The distinction between the sacred and the secular can no longer be maintained, they said in 1933. Now, one way to read this is that there's no such thing as the sacred, right? One way to read it is that everything essentially is secular. But another way, you might be able to guess which way I'm going to like best, (laughs) is to say that everything might be sacred, I actually think this is where we come back to the Gnostics. You remember that quote from Elaine Pagels that I cited earlier? Orthodox Jews and Christians insist that a chasm separates humanity from its creator. God is wholly other. You can imagine it, right? But some of the Gnostics who wrote these Gospels contradict this. Self-knowledge is knowledge of God. The self and the divine are identical. When I think about Gnosticism in that way, I think, too, about transcendentalism, that great movement in the 19th century with Ralph Waldo Emerson, you know, and Henry David Thoreau. You think about the transcendentalists who said, there's nothing that needs separate us from the religious experience. We don't need ceremonies. We don't need churches. We don't need priests. All we need are ourselves. We have our own direct connection, the lifting of the veil, Emerson called it. Emerson, as you might know, was such an important figure for Felix Adler, who went on to found ethical culture. So there's something there, I think, for us in that idea of the coming together, transcendentalism, the transcendent experience available to all of us anytime not just in separated places. The humanist sacred, I think, isn't unknowable in a mystical sense. There's not a secret body of knowledge that some people can access and others can't. And yet I think there's still a sense of connection there with the Gnostic tradition. My friend Nancy McDonald Loud, who serves as the senior minister at River Road UU Congregation, and I were having a um, late night Facebook chat last night. It's actually on my Facebook page, so if you want to <laughs> be entertained, you can follow our thread. We were sort of complaining to each other about working on our platform slash sermons for the next morning, and she asked me if I would just write hers for her, and I said that only if she would write mine for me, and so we each did a few sentences for the other. She may be quoting me this morning, and I'm going to quote her. What she said was perfect. They're talking about yearning and desire, by the way, just FYI. Here's what she said. She summed it up for me. 
As mystics, the Gnostics are theologically and culturally quite far afield from the relatively intellectual traditions that undergird religious humanism. And yet their fierce insistence that the individual finite soul can grasp elements of the infinite creator, can in fact know some pieces of the very truth of our being, stands as a bold inspiration to all who hold faith in the vast capacity of the human creature to discover truth. She's so smart, isn't she? I loved it. So what, then, is our authentic understanding of the sacred? Because it sure isn't the textbook definition. We knew that starting out, right? For the most part, I think we are existentialists. I actually once had a bunch of West um, folks take a philosophical test, like a quiz online, and, and we, all, we all pretty much came out as existentialists. We create meaning ourselves. We don't find capital M meaning that exists somewhere, but we create it together. We name it, and we name the sacred, too, I think. Our song this, this month, Merely a Miracle, speaks, I think, to our understanding of the sacred as well. The idea that we can experience marvel even when the mystery is gone from something. Even when I know why the rain falls, it still keeps raining anyhow. But what I wonder is if there's no place for mystery for us. I actually think we may have learned something since 1933 when that Humanist Manifesto was written. One of the things I love about the story we started with is that although it is grounded in science, it pulls out the mystery, the wonder of that story. All of the experiences of sacred that we've talked about are like that, a feeling, a moment, a bond. You can't codify it, which is why the Gnostics perhaps aren't so dissimilar from us after all. They too resisted the orthodox move to fit the sacred into particular theological truths. Sometimes agnostics, ironically, can be awfully sure of things, awfully knowing Whereas in Gnosticism, there's a kind of openness to the unknowing sometimes, to the mystery. Perhaps our task might be to embrace our agnosticism, writ broadly, I mean, our not knowing even more fully. And I say that whether you call yourself an agnostic personally, or a theist, or an atheist, or whatever it might be, because all of us on some level don't know fully are agnostic. I wonder what it would be like to explore sacred without the need to know, without claiming gnosis or truth or certainty or anything, actually, except our own power of meaning-making. Our own sense of what is most important, most inviolable. I wonder if we can name the sacred, the holy, as Adler put it, if we can make it, if we can see it around us, or be it, even. After all, for us, The world and all it holds can be 
merely a miracle waiting for us to notice it.